Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts and minds will be pleasing and acceptable unto thee, our guide and our destination. Amen. I think that there are two moments uh, when you discover whether or not hunting specifically deer hunting, is going to be a part of your future. A lot of noise is made about the moment that you take the shot. And a lot of the guys that I hang out with and hunt with will love to tell you all the stories about when they took the shot. But I think the first moment when you decide whether or not deer hunting is going to be a part of your life is at about 5.30 in the morning. (laughs) That first November 15th, when you manage to get yourself up into the tree stand in the darkness and the Michigan cold starts to set in well before the sun has peaked over the horizon. For all of the people that I know that have tried to go hunting, for whom have decided that hunting is not for them, that was the most often reason cited for choosing not to go hunting. It is very, very cold and very, very dark, and you are waiting for an animal to appear that is very, very silent. So you can't just hang out and play games on your phone. You have, to, you have to actually pay attention. The other moment typically comes after the hunt. And after any successful hunt, there's a great deal of work that needs to be done. And oftentimes, in doing that work, people discover whether or not they want hunting to be a part of their lives. I've hunted for many years, and I enjoy the time that I get to spend alone in the woods in the dark, in the cold. Cold doesn't really bother me. I don't like being in the dark so much, but I've always been okay being a little bit cold. I think that's a Michigan thing. I like fishing, too, for the same reason. You get to be out there, and it's quiet. It's not surprising to see Jesus make these journeys into the wilderness. He is constantly surrounded by people, and it seems like there are either people that want to catch him in a lie, get him in trouble with the law, or it is his disciples, some of the most irritating people on the planet, especially in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew. His, gospels pepper him with quest- his disciples pepper him with questions throughout the Gospels, and at numerous occasions, he has to go and be alone. He seeks solitude. Solitude, which is, I think, very different from loneliness, A lot of hay is made these days about whether or not we're extroverts or introverts. And now I found out recently that you can be an extroverted introvert or even an introverted extrovert. I think that the reality is that in different places of our lives and at different times, we need solitude. We need a chance to get away. Not just from the intense labor of our activities of daily living, but also because when we're in relationship with other people, Other people are always telling us who we are. If I wear this thing and I go to Meijer after worship to buy a case of beer, (laughs) let's make it complicated, right? I may encounter another person who's interested in telling me who I am. Clergy get told who they are all the time by other people. I'll let you in on a little secret about clergy. They're people, (laughs) just like everybody else. 
But when we're around other people who know us, we're always be, being, being given a narrative, being told who we are, right? And it may be accurate or it might not be accurate. I can only spend a limited amount of time in the presence of my older brother. He's eight years older than me. If he was 90 and I was 82 and we were hanging out together, he would look at me and see a 12-year-old boy. I will be that 12-year-old boy for as long as we live. And that's okay. That's the narrative of who I am and our relationship together. But sometimes I can't be a 12-year-old boy. I need to be the 40-year-old father of three. And I got to get away from that stuff a little bit. When you're with other people, when you're constantly surrounded by your friends or your family or your boss or whoever it is that's telling you who you are, sometimes you need to put some distance between that and sit down and spend time with God reviewing who you really are. Who you really are. Not who you want to be. I want to be clear about that. We spend a lot of time in America talking about who you want to become. We're constantly fed advertisements for people that we aren't in the hopes that we'll decide to give somebody money to make us into people that we could be. As your pastor, I want you to get really, really clear on who you are. Because I believe without a shadow of a doubt that you were made in the image of God, that you're a God-bearer, and that you're a miracle, with or without any of the extra stuff that the advertisers are trying to sell you. And I think that spending time with God in solitude, in peace, even in difficult circumstances, whether you be sitting on a pile of rocks in the Galilean desert or sitting in a tree stand at 5.30 in the morning in a cold November, you are alone, I hope, your soul in the presence of God, being reminded of who you are. Who is Jesus? when he goes into the wilderness. I think that there are many things that he's being told about who he is. I think God says to him at the moment of baptism, and I preached about this a few weeks ago, you are my son, the beloved, with you I'm well pleased. That ought to be sufficient for his needs. But he goes into the wilderness. And in Mark it simply says, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. With the wild beasts and angels waited on him. In the other Gospels, in Luke and Matthew, we have the actual temptations that Satan set before him. I think, personally, that these temptations that Satan is presenting to Jesus Christ are informative and reflective of the temptations that are set before us today. When other people tell us who we are or when other people tell us who we ought to be. Now, it's important to understand that this character, Satan, has changed a lot in people's minds since the Gospels were written. In the time of the Bible, in the writing of the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, Satan is not a, a little, little guy jumping around in a red unitard, a little pokey, a little hay fork. He's not he's got a you know, snaky tail and, and two little horns. That stuff came much later. Satan, 
who is several different characters, really, in the Old Testament, um, is perhaps better understood as a, a, a prosecutor, a tester, an agent of God sent to wander the earth and uh, test, test people, ask them questions, see if they're taking this whole religion thing seriously. Not a bad guy. Mm. But I think that if you were in court and a prosecutor was arguing that you ought to be locked up in jail, it'd be quite easy to perceive that prosecutor as the bad guy in the story. And so a lot of the biblical narratives have Satan appearing as the bad guy, but it's Satan's he's doing his job. Satan tempts Jesus with three very specific promises. Mm. He tempts him with bread. Uh, he tempts him with uh, influence. Uh, he tempts him with celebrity. Celebrity. The devil offers him bread, and Jesus is starving. Says, Jesus says, you know, I'm not really out here for bread. <laughs> He says, one does not live by bread alone. What is bread? It's security. It's security. How tempting would it be if somebody were to come to us and say, in exchange for oh, just your soul, <laughs> in exchange for your faith, in exchange for your testimony or your witness, in exchange for all of the gifts that God has given you to sow into the creation, in return I will give you security. You will never again have to worry about having enough to eat. You won't ever again have to worry about your body or what you will wear. I'm going to give you all of these things for the rest of your life. Ah, that's very tempting. Very tempting offer. But Jesus has a higher mission. And I think that he knows that even were he to have that security, he would be asked to give it up as a sacrifice for the work that has to be done. In exchange, the devil offers him influence and says, I will give you all the nations of the earth. They're all going to bow down and listen to you. All you have to do is bow down to me. And Jesus says, oh, I, already, I already have a God. I already have somebody that I've chosen to worship. Influence. Influence, the ability to say something and to have your voice heard, listened to. And finally, offers him a chance to demonstrate his glory, to leap off of the pinnacle of the temple, have angels carry him down, so that all of those jokers, uh, people giving him grief in Jerusalem, all those high muckety mucks and the important people, will see once and for all, for all that he is who he says he is. Mm, that's celebrity. I think celebrity is so tempting, so tempting. I think that a lot of us overestimate the benefits that come with celebrity. <laughs> I think a lot of us probably overestimate how easy famous people have it. I think that many, many people who have celebrity would give anything in their, in their possession, would trade anything in their possession to get rid of it and to just have a normal life. 
And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to put God to the test. Because Jesus has realized at the very depth of his journey of solitude and fasting that he already has everything that he needs. He already has everything that he needs. We don't practice fasting as a religious discipline here in the United Church of Christ, St. John's Church. When I was worshiping with that lovely Pentecostal church down in the Antilles in St. Martin, they were coming out of a two-day fast. They even invited me to break the fast with them after the worship service. And I felt bad because I hadn't been fasting. <laughs> but I did as they asked. I remember the first time um, when Auntie Sahida was living in my church. She was living in my office. It's a Muslim woman. She was a person possessed of absolutely incredible faith. And she was living in a Christian church and she didn't know anything really about Christianity, but she wanted to learn more about it because she was spending a lot of time with us. And it was Lent. She'd moved in and I was getting the church ready for Lent. And um, she, uh, she said, what do, you, what do you do during Lent? And I said, well, we, we fast just because that was my seminary answer. She said, oh, it's like Ramadan. I said, no. I said, you give up food? I said, no, I was like giving up chocolate or something. <laughs> Our Muslim brothers and sisters understand fasting. They understand it. And they do it faithfully because it increases their faith. No, for us, Fasting, especially in the United Church of Christ, often means that we're driven to do things that are outside of our comfort zone. We're driven to say that we would give up the safety, security, and comfort of this world to take on the righteousness of advocating for the poor and the dispossessed and the marginalized. Our fast is often, as is written in the, in the prophet Micah, a, a, a fast of justice and righteousness. Um, so... When we talk about fasting, especially when we talk about other traditions that practice fasting, sometimes we're a little bit illiterate. I know many people who fast for spiritual reasons. And it is not so that they can demonstrate their faithfulness or prove that they're righteous. In fact, most of those whom I know who fast make a very uh, intentional point to, to, to not tell anybody that they're fasting. Yeah. Climb a mountain, tell nobody. And I have seen it increase their nearness to God. I've seen it clarify their thought and their purpose. So if you have chosen for Lent to take on a fasting discipline, in other words, to try and give something up or reduce the influence or power of something in your life, I want to honor and celebrate that. Because I believe that through that process, you will gain some clarity about who you really are. And I'm less concerned during Lent with you learning about who you ought to be and more with you learning who you really are. Because on Good Friday, that is what you're going to need. You're going to need to know exactly who you are. When the questions are asked of us, when the rubber meets the road, we need to know who we are, not simply 
who we want to be. For some of you, knowing who you are is going to be a medicine. I know people who get depressed from looking at Facebook. And I wish that they wouldn't do it. Remember not to compare your everyday life to other people's highlight reels. That's what social media is. It's a very cynical form of celebrity where people try to present themselves as having their stuff together. Nobody has their stuff together, people. But people who lose the peace in their souls or who have dissatisfaction with their own lives because they're comparing themselves to other people. And that thief comparison, the thief of joy, sneaks into their hearts and takes away what blessing they have. And they forget who they are. If um, Facebook or social media makes you jealous or covetous, I want to encourage you to sit with that during Lent and then see and figure out if you can find the source of that disquiet. And if you experience jealousy or covetousness, as we say in the language of the church, I don't want you to simply try to shut that down, but rather sit with it and follow it to its natural conclusion. I think that too often as Christians, we simply turn our head away from the things that we ought not to do, and we don't do the hard work of sitting and explaining to our souls why it is that we don't pursue those things. And so if you are je jealous, or, or, or you do believe that, that, that there's something that you need to be, or something that you are lacking, sit with that feeling, and follow that thread through to the end. And I believe that you will find, in the end, that you in fact already have everything that you need. And then finally, if your experience of being tied up in other people's narratives and other people's descriptions of themselves or who you ought to be, if, if you derive uh, a pain from that, I want you to, um, to try to cultivate joy on behalf of other people. The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Um, these days, I see people, rather than doing that, kind of flipping the two, rejoicing at other people's distress. There's a German word for it, schadenfreude. I'm sure you're all uh, familiar with that term. There, that word has an opposite, too, in Sanskrit, uh, mudita. Uh, mudita is when something good happens to somebody else and you experience vicarious joy. Vicarious joy. I think that you can have a relationship with social media if you're able to do that. It's hard to do. But if you're able to do that, I think that you can have a healthy relationship with Facebook. In our solitude, in our fasting, in our times when we are alone and we are tempted by security, authority, or celebrity. I believe that those are times when we should rejoice because God is very near to us. God is very near to us. God is with you and will comfort you. 
And that when you have passed through the fast, passed through the time of challenge, the time of trial, the time of questioning who you are and who you ought to be, God will attend to you with angels. That's what the story says. We skip over that part. Jesus is tempted in the desert. The devil offers him security, authority, and celebrity. Jesus successfully says no. And then what? Flits back to Galilee? No. There's a party. There's a party at the end. Jesus is waited on by angels. He experiences joy. He experiences fullness and satisfaction and well-being. Our God is not a God of scarcity, but one of abundance. And so if you are going through a dark night of the soul, if you are trying to figure out and determine who you really are, who it is that God made you to be, not listening to the other voices, taking a break, taking a hiatus, taking a sabbatical, for God's sakes, from all of the narratives that other people are putting on you. You're avoiding Facebook. You're avoiding these things. And you're really spending time near to God, in solitude, trying to remember who you are. Remember that at the end, God will send angels. Remember that at the end, there will be a party, there will be a celebration, and it will be worthwhile. And I know statistically this is the case, because if it wasn't true, I don't think that a billion people would undertake a 40-day fast every year. I think that we lose ourselves in other people's narratives, but that when we invest that time in solitude and in remembering who we are, that at the end, there will be a celebration. There will be blessing. There will be angels. So don't be afraid. Kinfolk, take Lent seriously. It's a discipline. It's a practice. But cultivate joy and setting aside covetousness. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. But draw near to God. Set aside some time in solitude and ask God to remind you of who you are. Grow your inner peace through that practice these 40 days and it will sustain you through Holy Week and through the rest of the year. Amen. Amen.